0: What's going on, man?
1: Hey, happy Wednesday, Alex. How's it going?
0: Yeah, hey, good, man. Seems to always be a Wednesday. I guess that's our days from now on.
1: Yeah, no, I feel like we're we're never Monday or Tuesday. It's Wednesday. because hey, like...
0: Monday's hard for carriers,
1: man. Like Monday's tough for me. So you you seem to be having yourself a day anyway with uh, some of your some of your content. Hey, let's just call it a week at this point, man.
0: I mean. <laughs> Is what it is, it's freight, but uh, episode 12. Man, they just seem to keep keep going, and uh, yeah, it's going faster.
1: Our, our display still says yeah. episode three on every show, <laughs> yeah,
0: but, yeah. Let's just say, uh, the, the trucks have been getting in the way of video editing, but uh, I'll work on it, I'll get that. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm excited, uh, to have Matt on the show today. I mean, Matt's you know, one of the most knowledgeable attorneys you know that we see on LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, and you know, I made a post obviously about 371, you know, about carriers. Um, you'll be able to see, you know, the Raycon and what brokers are making and, you know, we, everyone has their opinion on it, but there's opinions and there's also legal facts to go with it. So, um, you know, we're excited to dive into that. And obviously we're going to talk about some non-compete stuff too, but main focus is, uh, was it CF 371.3? I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, to my knowledge, she's one
0: of the only attorneys on LinkedIn. I mean, from what I've seen. So let's... Let's definitely dive into the topic and bring him on. Sounds good. Good hey, afternoon,
1: Alex. gentlemen.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm 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 excited to talk about law and supply chain. Two of my favorite things.
1: Yeah, we're excited to uh, have you. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. Um, so I guess maybe to start, um, you know, Alex and I were talking before the show. You want to give kind of the viewers, you know, your background, kind of you know what you do, how you got uh, how you got into supply chain.
2: Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm a third generation guy in the supply chain. My grandfather. After World War II, uh, he was a tank commander. He opened up his own trucking company. He ran six pieces of power hauling grain in central Illinois. Unfortunately, he got polio, went to the hospital, went bankrupt, and lost it all. So my father became like a mechanic back in the very early age. But in uh, 1976, my dad got into working for a company called Roadway. So back in pre-deregulation, there were three trucking companies that moved everything. That was Yellow, CF, Consolidated Freightways, and, of course, Roadway. So he spent 15 years at roadway before he started his own company and that company is called outsource fleet services because that's the trend at the time and we were the largest maintenance provider for a, a little company called roadway package systems rps which later became caliber which later became fedex ground So I've been in the supply chain for a minute. Uh, Back in 2010, I graduated law school from Michigan State University College of Law, and I represented trucking companies, uh, mostly in catastrophic accidents, insurance defense work. I did that for a few years before going in-house with my father's company. And we grew that business to over 100 mechanics, 40 mobile service trucks, and a fleet of rental and leased switch tractors, spotters, hostlers, shunters, whatever you want to call them. And then we sold the business in 2018, he exited, And I uh, went to work for the company that that had purchased me, and that was a company called Dickinson Fleet Services. I did that for a year and a half as like a VP of sales, and then I had a non-competition agreement. So I had to figure out like, what am I going to do now? And I was legally prohibited from repairing commercial vehicles for money for a period of time and I ended up going into software. So I did software sales for a couple of years and kind of bounced around. And these days I have uh, my moniker, people know as the armchair attorney. It's a small little law firm that does stuff Uh, mostly supply chain and commentary. And I am a vice president of sales and marketing for a company called Contract Leasing Corporation. We are one of the largest trailer leasing companies in the United States. We operate about 18,000 trailers. That's trailers, chassis, and refrigerated trailers, also called reefers. So I, I love trailers. I love law. And that's kind of my very quick overview of how in the world I got here.
1: It's very cool. You have a very unique story, everyone. It's always cool hearing how people got into supply chain, but that's uh, definitely one of the more unique ones.
2: Once you're here, you don't get out. Like, there's a point in everyone's (laughs) career. You're like, okay, what what day did you realize you're never going to get out of this business? And then, you know, I kind of knew that by about maybe seven or eight years old. So it it just is what it is.
0: I think that's a good point. I mean, I think anyone that entered supply chain more often than not didn't really think they were going to. But once you're in, you're in. Like, once the hooks are in, you know, you can't really get out of it.
2: Well, everything comes on a truck. I mean, before you think about like how it got to your doorstep or how it got to the retail shelf, it came on a truck from a warehouse or a distribution center. And that probably came on a chassis in a container when it got off a boat and the boat went across the ocean where the thing was manufactured half a world away. So what I tell people is like, you don't know you're in supply chain, but all of us are in supply chain. We don't get to opt out of it. Like it is just the way that everything operates.
0: Yeah. I mean, without trucks, you wouldn't have anything behind you in that room.
2: (laughs) If you look at the numbers, like for high school educated men, driving a truck is the most common job in every single state in the union. This is a job that moves America. And yet it's one of the top seven, I think, most dangerous jobs in the country. So I look at myself as an advocate for truck drivers, an advocate for brokers, advocate for mechanics, because this world doesn't move but for those people. And that's why I get to be very fortunate to come on programs like this and talk about whatever legal topic people are interested in because at the end of the day we're all bound by the same laws that affect everybody else
0: yeah i I think i think mechanics don't get enough love now now that you mentioned that because i used to work in a garbage company um and our mechanics were like our best friends you know if the truck goes down they can fix it for us we had in-house mechanics And until you just said that, I think nobody really talks about that without heavy duty mechanics, like the trucks wouldn't move. And that's it to,
2: to build off of that point. Like we talk a lot about driver shortage and there's a lot of facts that say that's really not a thing, but Mechanic shortage, absolutely. Uh, we have told people that if you want to work uh, in the trades, you're not being a successful person. And we desperately yeah. need people to realize yeah. there are good. Chris, I remember one parcel carrier trying to hire a day shift mechanic paying $48 an hour. And this was about five years ago. And they couldn't find anybody because the skill sets are just so uh, well, hard to teach these days. I mean, and, I think
0: that's know. because, like you had just said, um, the school system, I, I fell into it too. They tell you, you know, if you go into trades, if you go into anything, where you're using your hands to make money, that's your failure at life. Absolutely. You have to to go to university. You have to be book smart. You have to have an office job. Um, And I mean, I think... South Park made an episode about this. Eventually, it's going to catch up to us, and there's going to be no guy to come fix your toilet. There's going to be no guy to come build your deck and et cetera, et cetera. Um,
2: Absolutely. I think I mean, tra- the school
0: system's to blame for a lot of that.
2: And, sure. and, and, and even building further on that, like we can find you know, automotive mechanics. Finding a trailer mechanic, someone who knows how to weld and do body work on a 53-foot van, like that's hard. Doing aluminum welding, that's tough. And we don't have a single school that I'm aware of that does a trailer only mechanic certification. It's all, let's get to diesel. Let's get to refrigeration. And there's a lot of opportunity in those beautiful, beautiful 53 foot vans with swing doors. Or 28 foot pop with roll up doors. These
0: are topics, you know, I actually never thought about until right now. Like you said, um, I mean, I've had a lot of trailer damages over the years. And like, just to get one panel on the 53 drive van replaced, like that can take you sometimes weeks. To find the guy, to find the panel, and the cost is astronomical. Just for so, a
2: we, when we were running maintenance for FedEx Ground, we were the largest vendor for FedEx Ground for over twenty years. We had all the of California. Um, we were running shifts three, uh, three, three shifts a day, so it, net shops were always open, running three sixty five. Um, it, it's tough. It's a tough business, but. We need mechanics. And there's great people like Tyler Robertson at Devil's Laptops, American Diesel Training Centers that are putting out really good content around educating mechanics. But yeah, I, I'm with you. This is the, the, they're the unsung hero. Supply chains exist to enable growth. Mechanics and maintenance is what allows it to sustain itself. Without maintenance, we're in a very bad place.
0: Yeah, I think that topic, uh, I just saw it on LinkedIn yesterday. I've been thinking about it a lot, especially today. I had a, a breakdown or two um, due to the trailers, this and that. And they said, like you know, the price of freight, the price of loads, et cetera, is directly tied to safety. And I mean, that's something that I think a lot of us are not taking into account. Because I'm doing power only, and almost, I mean, two trailers in a row for a single driver of mine this week. He gets to the trailer, there's a flat tire. He gets to the trailer, there's a flat tire. I think people yeah. are really, really lacking on the maintenance. Uh, just doing conditions
2: do, do you want me to scare you and your viewers if you look at the commercial vehicle safety alliance every year they do a thing called international road check they telegraph months in advance hey uh we're gonna inspect equipment for 72 hours and they'll inspect yeah, the 40 boys. exactly they'll expect 40 50 60 000 pieces of equipment every single year about one in five commercial vehicles Fail the bare minimum safety inspections. Yeah. Imagine if you went to the grocery store and I said, hey, I got five gallons of milk. One of them is unsafe. Which one do you <laughs> want to buy? You'd say, Matt, I don't think you have a very good store here. If you're going to give me one in five being dangerous... I'm sorry, we have accepted a level of mediocrity in this industry that we really ought not to. And safety is, again, the the primary focus of the FMCSA, but they also do other regulations. We'll be talking about that stuff in a moment, but I I can talk about safety and maintenance all day long because it directly credits to the value of your insurance premiums and getting – Freight delivered safely on time and on but You
0: know what's even more insane about that stat? That's one in five out of the people that were willing to stay on the road knowing the blitz was coming, thinking they would pass. Bro, exactly. imagine there is such a like a hike in, in prices during safety blitz week because everyone knows that they can't pass it and they stay home. And that takes thousands of hundreds of thousands of trucks off the road. So, I mean, I think that stat would be two out of five, three out of five if, you know, if they didn't announce it.
2: And this is you driving on the highway, seeing these trucks next to you. You have no idea if they're well-maintained. Now, I know a lot of, like, I've been fortunate. I spent most of my career in maintenance and repair. I know the fleets that truly value maintenance and safety. And I know the fleets that... uh, that don't. (laughs) And you can tell by their equipment, typically.
1: Well, let's, uh, let's dive in. I'm sure Alex could talk about uh, mechanics (laughs) for for a whole hour, but uh, let's let's dive into this, uh, this uh, uh, 371.3. So this is kind of what we, you know, a big topic on Twitter, you know, we've seen on there, basically, I'll let Matt explain it. But basically, this is you know, what shows that if a carrier wants to know what a broker got paid um, that's kind of what this is matt you want to kind of
2: you know, yeah absolutely hear? so this is a, this is a holdover of the pre-deregulation era so you have to remember um in the old days Everything was regulated. Everything had to be priced in a very specific way and people had access to different information. As as time went on and deregulation took place, some of these regulations kind of got pushed under like for the example the FMCSA. Now, FMCSA cares a lot about safety. That's like their mission. This is more about broker compliance. It's not necessarily something we think about when it comes to what the FMCSA is is in, in caring about or, or in charge of but the reality is this reg has been on the books for a very long time and to your point it's essentially what you have to provide to a motor carrier if they ask you for it and if you're a broker what has traditionally happened is you don't want to do that so what you'll do in some cases is you'll have an agreement that has a waiver of this. So if you're a motor carrier and you wanna get access to this, you might have signed a document without realizing it that says you don't actually have a right to these records. But at its very basic fact, you must, as a broker, provide information to the driver if they make the request. Now there's not like a this is the form you do it or how long it takes, what the penalties are. And that's why it's been so ambiguous for so long. But this idea of broker transparency is not new. It's it's very important for everyone to know. Like this is not like a, oh my gosh, we're just now talking about it. This has been talked about for decades. It just goes, it's ebbs and flows based on whatever's in the news, but this is the exact regulation that is on the books and it is actual law that brokers must comply with. And people seem to be surprised. Um, I think OIDA did some research a few years ago and it was like 50% of all truck drivers have no idea this regulation even exists. They have no clue about it, which just goes to show like, people don't understand what they're signing and if they're not understanding what they're signing we have to figure out why and ultimately i don't think you can legally waive it that's why people are kind of mad at me on, on the internet because i don't think it's legally possible to say oh yeah you you waived that right that's um a federal regulation
1: interesting so he is this because you know we're seeing a lot of guys like the National Owner Oper- Owners Operator Association, and a lot more people lobbying on this, which is maybe why you're you're hearing about it more. But is that the you know, first time you've heard of an actual FMSC going to a billion-dollar brokerage's office and saying like you need to comply with this, um, or is that you know, been happening this, before? We just don't hear about it.
2: This story is so bizarre. I mean, the TQL story with I think Pink Cheeto, whatever the name of the motor carrier was the the idea that fmcsa would like show up and say give me records like that's not how they uh, that's not what happened like that didn't work that way it <laughs> seemed to be that someone filed a complaint they pushed the fmcsa and they investigated so probably they sent an email made a phone call and said hey you need to turn over these records and it kind of got into the news and it became like the circulating thing of this is like this random event that's taken place. and It's such an aberration. I honestly don't think a lot of motor carriers are pushing this thing. Um, at the end of the day, freight is what freight is. The operating, the margins that brokers make on average in, in totality is between 13 and 16%. It, occasionally, they might get a massive rip, make a ton of money, but that's occasionally. That being said, it's really exciting. That people are now learning about laws that they actually didn't realize, which is you have a right to records if you want them and you get to get them. And if you don't produce them, you're violating the law. Now, what the penalty is, is very, very hard to say because it's not one that FMCSA seems to want to enforce very often.
1: So you think there could be legal based on what you're saying is that brokerages in their carrier packets that waive this right for carriers to see that, that. You know they're basically waiving a federal law and in your legal opinion they can't do that so there could be you know legal action against brokerages for yeah. for doing that
2: yeah and I'll be very let me be very clear I I'm not a lawyer for any of your audience members I'm just giving like I'm, this is not legal advice if you think you need a lawyer you probably should get one <laughs> um, that's my disclaimer but I'll say this is if you were to say to somebody hey we're gonna waive. Minimum wage for you as an employee. And you say, that sounds great. Um, I don't care what you decide you wanted to do. The law is the law. And some people say, well, the regulations are different than the law. And the answer to that is no, (laughs) they're not like a statute, a a law passed by Congress and then signed by the president is the same force and effect as these codes that we see in the cfr the, the 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 big amalgamation of all the federal rulemaking stuff so to your point um if someone says i w- you waived that right there's a real question of whether they actually could waive that right at all as to what the recourse could be i don't know presumably one party the motor carrier could potentially sue the broker to get access to those records. And I think the broker would probably have to turn those records over. I also think this helps build the case that OIDA has been talking about for a few years, which is OIDA's position on this RAG, the 371.3, is it's not strong enough. Their recommendation is the moment the load is done being moved, that data from the broker gets automatically sent to the motor carrier, everything about that transaction. That would be bonkers. That would be substantial to comply with that. But if brokers want to drag their feet and not comply with the, the laws that sits today, maybe they'll comply with a law that's a little bit more robust.
1: Do you, and your just your opinion. Do you think it's headed that way? Or uh, if you were to take a, take a guess,
2: I think that the, the, the challenge we have, and I think Ken Adamo had a great discussion on this in that overdrive article is, is what do you actually get out of it? Like, do you make brokers make less money? Do you as a motor carrier make more money? Probably not. But if I'm a motor carrier and I want to spot check my broker partners to see how they are performing and how what I do for them, I think that's interesting and useful. I think the ultimate pathway of this is some level of increased enforceability around the transparency. I don't think the FMCSA is in a great position to do that. They're not funded to do that. So either we have to fund them better or make an an agency maybe that regulates brokers themselves as opposed to the FMCSA doing it. I I don't know where it goes. I think it's an interesting flash in the pan and I'm glad people are talking about it, but I don't know practically what long-term impact it has because it doesn't really affect the rates in my opinion.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think this was the argument that I've been seeing the most, or I guess the argument that I've seen the most that kind of makes sense, I guess. I mean, I have my opinion on it, but What would you say, this is the argument, that if we know the rate the broker has in it, now the shippers like going to see what they're paying the carrier, drop the rate to the broker, so that way it more reflects what the truck's actually getting paid, and that takes money out of the broker's pocket, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah, I mean, brokers benefit from a lack of um, data transferring between parties that are involved with the transaction. like The broker's value ultimately is knowing things the shipper doesn't know and knowing things the motor carrier doesn't know. And that lack of knowledge and that lack of transparency is where the margin becomes where they get their, their money. Ultimately, I, I don't know really the best argument for you know why this thing is so uh, f- uh, frightening for so many brokers. I don't think it's going to push rates one way or the other, but it will show, at least in my opinion, that brokers are complying with the law. The thing that I go back to is just because the law doesn't seem to be very important right now doesn't mean you get to circumvent it. And the idea that a motor carrier can waive something around a federal regulation. It's like if a carrier said, "Oh, I'm going to I'm going to have a waiver of my annual inspection because the shipper doesn't care if I have an annual <laughs> inspection. Like I don't care what the shipper wants. I don't care what the broker wants. If the law is the law, you enforce it or you take it off the books, do something different.
1: Yeah. And, and I kind of have the the same, same take as you. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to you know change, change a whole lot. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think most brokers know the average margin somewhere between 13 and 16%. Um, but I, I, I see what you're saying because you know, I partly is just like if they want to do it, you know, do it because then, you know, a lot of the the bad thing about these one offs is, you know, they got a rate con that shows forty-seven percent. And then every carrier that sees that thinks that's the average margin and they question DAT's analytics. I guess there's something at the DAT at the bottom that says that this is not to be, I don't know, some disclaimer about their analytics and then the carriers, you know, question. So I I do kind of you know, it will be curious to see kind of what what happens um you know if it were to be you know were to be enforced but,
0: i mean from a law standpoint like from an actual law standpoint do you think this would be a slippery slope um when we get into it because what stops the broker after that gets passed from going to the shipper and saying, "Hey, I want your margins. I want your transparency on what you're charging the customer on transportation"?
2: I mean, this is the reality. Is like I think almost all the data is discoverable. Like if you're a, a enterprise shipper, maybe you're publicly traded, so you have access to certain information. What when I go back to as opposed to the slippery slope, I look at the pattern and practice we have as just. Entities in this in this industry, generally speaking, the idea that you can take someone who's less sophisticated than you, so a broker versus a carrier, and having them waive something or enter into a contract, they don't understand. This is the same reason why I'm so viscerally against things like non-competition agreements or non-disparagement agreements or training repayment plans. Like this idea that you can sign something without understanding it. And then having a party who's far more sophisticated than you push back and make your life harder. I don't like that. And so if, if we're going to say the reg is, is dumb, we're going to circumvent it with our contract. That is in my opinion, not a a sustainable path forward. The reality is the reg is there. You either obey it or you take it off the books. If you think you can circumvent it with contracts, ultimately, I think that will not be successful. But again, um, the value of the data is not really clear, but it is important that it is a thing that motor carriers should have the right to have access to. And waiving those things is not something I think is possible.
1: Now, here's an interesting question. I had a comment yesterday from somebody who owns a freight brokerage. They said that their shippers have a clause that they can't give out the rates to anyone in their contract. So if they were to be abiding by 371.3, that they would be then breaking the contract with their shippers. So, I mean, how does yeah. that work from a legal standpoint?
2: Yeah, so like that would likely be, and I've not seen any contracts like that in front of me recently, but I'd say it's like a non-disclosure agreement. It's a thing of you don't get to talk about my business with people who are not privy to what we're doing. But nearly every single NDA you're ever going to come across is if there is a rule or reg or subpoena that says mm-hmm. you must produce information, guess what you're doing? You're
0: producing yeah. information. Yeah, we're Maybe coming right have, back to that point where it's like, if it's a law, it's a law. It doesn't matter what your contract says at that point.
2: Exactly. And this is this this fundamental discussion of like, do you have the freedom to enter into contracts that are against the law? And we saw this many, many years ago with this general wage and hour things. Before there were minimum wages, you could say, well, you could work a job for a dollar an hour because both of you guys agreed to that. We as a society have come up and said no. We're not going to let parties make whatever deals they want to make. We're going to make parties agree to a baseline based on our regulatory authority. So I think ultimately, if a shipper has a non-disclosure and you are the broker and you get a request from a motor carrier, you probably tell the shipper, hey, I got this request. This is the regulation. I'm going to produce those records. And then you move on. Again, I don't see a lot of brokers or, or motor carriers doing this, like trying to get records, but they have a right to them. And if they want them, they get to have them.
1: Is that process too of filing a complaint, getting the FMSCA involved, because I, I saw, you know, a carrier now they're they're trying to help other carriers do this more, and you have to go through like a process of filling out a complaint number. You know, h- how much of a process is that to you know go through all those hoops to even get these you know records and get the FMSCA to you know investigate?
2: It's very strange. I mean, there's there's tens of thousands of complaints the fmcsa has that they need to investigate they don't have the resources to do this seems like a pretty simple kind of pathway of saying hey i need to get records they haven't given them to me and they're refusing to give them to me i think it simply is just sending letters is probably all you have to do to go through a formal process i've again i've seen the the, the stories of this I haven't validated it myself. I haven't seen the documents or the process that was utilized. So I don't. I can't really give a a strong opinion of like how onerous the process is for a brokerage, like preparing yourself to comply with this stuff could be very challenging. I mean, imagine if every single motor care every single day on every single load said, give me the records. Like what would you do? I have no idea, but you still could presumably have that happen.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh a, it's, it's interesting. It's, I didn't know this has been around since 1996 too. Um, you know, it's, I, I, This I is before
2: how- deregulation, man. This was before 1980. This has been around for a long, long time. Many of the regs we deal with are older regulations, but they're still good, valid law, even if the justification behind it isn't necessarily the same as it used to be.
0: So is this like at this moment, I'm a little confused now. Are we waiting for this to pass or are we able to, as carriers now, ask them for the rate right now today?
2: It, it's this is the law. Like you can ask now. You can ask no. the broker to get copies of the records, like the or like have records available to you. Maybe you could see them over a Zoom or something. But yes, these that law that three seven one point three that is absolutely the law of the land. You must comply with it. the The nuance here, Alex, is that the question of whether or not you can waive the right to that documentation. So if I sign a contract as a motor carrier and say, yeah, I don't want to have records. I don't want to get those things. Then I later come back and say, oh, I'd like those records. Now the broker goes back and says, Hey, uh, you waived this, but see, it's that section three. It's at three, seven, one point three section C each quote. Each party to a brokerage transaction has the right to review the record of the transaction required to be kept by these rules so you have to hold on to these records for a period of time i believe it's three years and you have to produce them but again it's make them available that's that's a very interesting like what does that actually mean does that mean you you email them you fax them um it's more about like the they have a right to review them which is you can see them not keep them
0: i'm just confused now because why is it all over linkedin we're talking about the bill passing like what's going on with that
2: so the story the story that i have heard that has to do with 371.3 is that a a small motor carrier moved a load for tql they wanted to get opera they want and i have my my tql pen here i I love my
0: my tql pen i hope Uh, there's no bias towards them at this point in the story uh,
2: they they won't allow me to follow them on twitter i hope someday that they do um i would be very nice if they did i i i am very friendly i'm not a bad person but essentially this this motor carrier wanted to get a record of the transaction TQL allegedly said no. That motor carrier called or or complained to the FMCSA and they got involved. And then they told TQL to produce the records, and TQL did. The the exact numbers were not given out, but there was a percentage. And I think the percentage was something like the motor carrier kept like 40 or 45, 47% of the total amount that was paid to the brokerage. So the broker made more money on the transaction than the truck driver did. And as a society, um, I don't necessarily want that to happen. I, I rather have the truck driver make more because what they're doing is far more difficult. But that's not my place to call. It's just the nature of like, do you have to produce records or not? And so TQL had said that, hey, you waived that right to those records. Uh, so what and we're the,
0: waiting on is for the bill to pass to say that it's impossible to waive the right. It, it has to be produced.
2: Yeah, and it wouldn't no- be begin- – be a bill. It'd probably be a court that would say this. So uh, the FMCSA itself said, "Hey, we don't think you can waive that." That's the story that's been in the media. I have not heard or seen anyone from the FMCSA come out and definitively say we take the position that a waiver is illegal. We have not seen them do that, though they certainly could, and it would certainly add some level of clarity that would be useful.
0: Okay. So see, I've been sitting here for like these past couple of weeks, month, two months, thinking that this law, like this bill was what we were waiting to be passed when in reality we're waiting for it to be sort of mandatorily enforced. That's already here.
2: Yeah, and the thing is like the FMCSA doesn't have enough uh, enforcement capability to make trucks on the road safe. (laughs) Like their primary job is that you and your motor cares out there are safe. That's their number one job. They can't do that. Like they're not able to do that. When we we I mean we would need, in my opinion, far more investigators, far more you know inspectors to actually put a dent into this idea of one in five vehicles being dangerously unsafe. That being said, um, what we're waiting on really at this moment is one either new laws around broker transparency, and there's been a ton of chatter on the FMCSA doing this. If the FMCSA moves forward with more robust Transparency rules, it would likely be several years of a process where they would put out a proposal, they'd get comments, they'd make a final rule, and then they'd enforce the final rule. This is on the books now. This exists today. If you're a broker and you get a carrier saying 371.3 requires you to give me the records, um, either you're going to produce the records or you're not going to produce the records. If you choose not to produce them, there's a possibility the FMCSA would say, hey, produce the records. There's no penalty. There's no fine. As far as I'm aware, there's no fee shifting. So ultimately there's not a big, um, lever you can pull on punishing a broker for not complying, but they are required to comply.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting because I think that, you know, that thing we've all probably heard a million times. If the, the, if the fine or whatever for, for breaking the law is a monetary fine, then it's just the cost of doing business. Um, unless it's obviously at a monetary fine so large that it would actually affect something but like it's like the the thing like if the the parking ticket is $150 it costs $150 to park there it's not breaking the law
2: um, yeah uh, it'd be I, interesting want to bring up to see, mike's
0: comment alex yeah it just be interesting to see how they're going to enforce brokers to do any of this you know
2: so yeah, this is it. So there you go. This is an interesting uh, comment here that says the FMCSA has come out and says, you cannot waive this right. They will go and get documents if the broker will not give them to you when asked. Um, and they will enforce it. This is, this is interesting news. I, I This is how I've interpreted what they have talked about so far. The idea that you would have to disclose and that the waiver is not possible. It's the same, I think, understanding as you could say with the you know, TQL's lawsuit, with the um, misclassification of their entry-level brokers, you can't get people to agree to do something illegal. Like that's the you can't do yeah. that. You can't say we're going to agree that we're not going to we're going to break. We're going to
0: sign this paper. We're going to pay you two dollars an hour in Chicago. Yeah. I mean, it's just not possible. Um, but it also with this you. comment, Absolutely. with this comment, I mean, what's the process at that point? How long does that take? How like, you know how. Is it going to be enforced even with this comment? Okay, you can't waive it, but then what happens? You know,
2: This is what I would say is like this helps you understand who you want to partner with. Like we in this industry have a lot to say about relationships and reality is like relationships seem to be more esoteric than reality. So if you have a broker who's your partner and you say, hey, can I get a copy of this thing? Because I'm curious and they say, absolutely not and you might want to escalate this, maybe you realize that this is not someone you ultimately want to partner with long-term.
1: 100%. percent i will be interesting to see Oh, to kind of what you said too, I thought was interesting that the FMSCA, you know, doesn't have the manpower to enforce this. You know, if ten thousand carriers you know, started doing this tomorrow, they just simply don't have the the people. Someone commented they should move people from the IRS over to the FMSCA to, to enforce this. But. I mean,
2: this is I mean, this is the sad state of uh, of our industry. I mean, deregulation changed everything. And that change of everything went from 60% of truck drivers were unionized in 1980. Their average compensation was $38,000 a year. Adjust that for inflation. It's $110,000, $120,000. You can buy a house. You can put a kid through school. You can buy a car. It's not what it is anymore. And the FMCSA doesn't even have ratings for, let's say, 80 or 90% of trucking companies out there. That's bonkers. But that is the system. That is not a bug. It's a feature. The feature is fragmentation and chaos. And Some people love it and they make a lot of money or they reduce operating costs for moving freight across the country by having a lot of tentacles all over the place.
1: How does it work too if, like, let's say a carrier does this and then the broker just blackballs that carrier for asking for the rate con? Is there any legal – are brokers allowed to do that legally or could that lead to – Lawsuits as well. Yeah,
2: I, I don't think you'd see lawsuits around being blacklisted. Like th- that is absolutely I, th- I think a real possibility. If you're the squeaky wheel, they might just remove the wheel. Like, it's yeah. not like let's just make this carrier happier. Like the the fortune the, the thing about this moment in time is that brokers have you know, shippers have the most power, brokers have the second most, and motor carriers have none of it. Uh, and that shifts like this is an industry that goes up and down, up and down. And someday the mo- the motor cares will be back into power and they'll have more you know, power to push back on how much they charge for things. But this um, it's just going to continue to go ebb and flow like it always does.
1: Here's an interesting comment, I guess. Uh, Mike commented, uh, this was. Not some guy at the FMSCA. We had extensive meetings with them. They went to legal, Sue Lawless decided that they would start enforcing
0: Yeah. Them. I mean, like let's saying, not hop over okay. the comment that we have on the screen, you know, like Bill's saying over here, like they can't even you know deal with the MC number issues. How are they gonna regulate this? Especially when they're not getting paid. Yeah, I mean the, this is the, like this now. is exactly
2: the this is the real challenge. Exactly right.
0: And now we have him coming back saying they're gonna enforce it, but the question is how are they going to enforce it?
2: I mean, like I mean, w- the way that we enforce a lot of regulations is through private litigation. So like there's, there's pathways where you say, look, we as the regulator, we can't do this. Like AB five is a great example. State of California is not coming and knocking on people's door and saying, you misclassified. We're suing you. What typically happens is a motor carrier, uh, gets a lawyer and the lawyer says, how did they classify you? Oh, they said you're an independent contractor. That's interesting. How about yeah, we find out see, that's actually what it is, is.
0: All of these things as a carrier is all of these things go into private matters and that costs you money. And now like, let's say you get stiffed for, for a couple of grand by a broker. Now you go get a lawyer. By the time it's all said and done, it's been two years you spend spent more than what they're owed, you know? And there's a the reason why- that, that layover issues are, are for the, the amounts that they're at. Because it's going to cost you more money to fight to get it than it is what it's worth.
2: And And what ends up happening is like unless there's – we call I used this phrase before and I should explain it, like fee shifting. So a lot of regulations when you have a private lawyer help you um, and they have fees that they incur because they're in the process of suing or whatever – they can recover their fees so that you, as the person who's been wronged, pay nothing. You just have those fees get paid for by the other side. But you have to get to a judgment or a settlement, and that takes time. So that's one of the challenges with this with this business generally is the dollar amounts for a single move It's not a lot. And the penalties are in, they're very inconsequential. So you end up being in a place where it's just easier to say, I guess I'll just go do something different, or I'll just deal it. I'll let this one slide and get it next time around. So yeah. I mean, that's
0: what I've been saying for years in this industry with accessories and stuff like this. Like the consequence for the mistake or lie, et cetera, et cetera, problem are just so small where it's at the point it's you know it's you're just gonna run away from it, and the carrier's gonna say. Oh, it's 250 bucks. Ah, oh, it's 300 bucks. What am I going to do? Am I going to spend eight months of my time or am I going to get back on the load board and just find a new load? You know? uh, and th- this is like
2: the, the 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 pathway. If this continues to be like, as you kind of outlined, um, class actions are possible, right? Like, so the TQL, I'm going to use TQL because I, I love them so much and maybe they'll <laughs> let me follow them if I continue talking about them. Um, the idea that they took 4,500 entry-level freight brokers from 2008 until 2016 and they got sued for this in 2010, and they didn't get a verdict until 2023. So this is 13 years of litigation. Each class member of those 4,500 people may only get a couple thousand dollars. But if you add up that as all of those people, all 4,500, the numbers change dramatically. Now no, you're looking no. at a hundred million or two hundred million dollars, and yeah, it's like now you change
0: Stealing one dollar from a million people instead of a million dollars from one person, um, it's much easier yeah. to do it, you know, to many people in small amounts. So. That's
1: a long. Yeah, and how does that go on for just a legal standpoint how does that how are they able to push that off for 13 years or however that, long
2: that is the most this is one of the most fascinating cases in supply chain the two biggest cases out there right now that is one of them because there's a lot of things we'll talk about, about in a second the other one being the the global trans case that's that's being appealed to the Supreme Court of the united states but the the Tkl case is very important this is what we call bet the farm kind of litigation like you do everything you can to slow it down. So to get the class certified, you fight that for years. This thing went to trial in 2022 and then there were motions and motions. It wasn't until I think September or maybe October of this year that they actually were found liable. But the thing about misclassification in labor, there's not a single insurance policy you can buy for this. This is money out of your operating cash that has to be paid. And TQL was found to be acting in bad faith. Um, they, when they went to find out whether or not their people should be classified as exempt or non-exempt, they went to one thing, the TIA. They went to TIA and they said, hey, should we make these people exempt or non-exempt? And TIA said, allegedly, uh, you should make them exempt. And that was the only thing that Ken Oaks did according to the deposition and the the lawsuit that was filed. So it's just, it's, it's fascinating and it's bonkers that you see this kind of liability, but yeah, to your point, Matt, like it took a long, long time. These cases can take a
0: very long time. I mean, I think it always boils down to, I mean, anyone who's been through the legal system firsthand, secondhand, in general, the more money you have, the, the longer you can keep something going. And I mean, when you're a company with that much money, you, it's just like, it comes back to, it's a cost of doing business, you know, um, if Absolutely. you're acting in bad faith, but it's getting you money, it's the same as being, you know, like a drug cartel or something. Like when you have enough money, doesn't matter really how you got it. If you can afford to keep fighting the law because money's, you know, that's how you, how the legal system works. Absolutely. And it, wants, it, wants to get paid. Every lawyer, every person involved wants money. So
2: It's usually whoever has the most money can last the longest. And if you last the longest, you yeah. can, you can typically win.
0: I think we should throw this up quick though, since we have like a long history running with TQL uh, on the show. <laughs> so, <laughs> maybe get this one out of the way for a second here. Yeah.
2: I, uh, I love those guys. Look, the reality is like this industry is is built off the backs of very hardworking people, and there's yeah. people who are trying to do whatever they can to to go as close to complying with the law as they possibly can while still, you know, maintaining the operating margin. I mean, I think that's
0: just, you know, capitalism in 2023. And I mean, big corporations are, every single person is gonna fly as close to the sun as they can until they get burned. I mean, everyone's gonna play with that gray area. Everyone's gonna push it to the envelope when it comes to taxes, when it comes to labor shortage or pays. And I I think that's just kind of the culture. It's gotten to a point where the corporations have grown so large and, you know, you have like the 1% of the people in the world have like all the money. Um, It just gets to a point where exploitation is going to happen eventually.
2: Well, this was the, I mean, this is not about like exploitation or or anything like that, but like the idea of deregulation is a great example. Like in those days, there was a handful of motor carriers that moved everything. There weren't brokers necessarily because they weren't necessary because your deals were done with the government. Like this was the lane that you had. The only way to grow is to acquire companies that had the rights to the lanes you want to participate. You look at it today, the ocean carriers, there's like five or 10 of them that move everything in the ocean. You look at us in our supply chain, and no one has more than 20% market share of anything. It's all fragmented. And it's done that way on purpose to make sure that rates stay at some level of being low. And I mean, there was a day, a time when the Teamsters could stop the, the entire country, the Teamsters could stop every single thing in the country from moving that is not the case anymore we see that with the death of yellow a 99 year old company that had existed before there were highways before there were containers <laughs> before all of before there was elds and they couldn't make it ultimately
1: and just to just to reiterate cuz uh there's a comment about if you didn't comply with this you could risk getting you know arrested without complying with the federal rule but there's no there's no penalties for brokers not complying yeah, this, there's no
2: criminal penalty at least like 71, that. 1.3. Yeah, you you would I mean I I do not know the, the exact penalties that someone could face because they're not clear in the statute, but I do not believe that you could be arrested or a criminal prosecution around failing to comply with something. Maybe monetary fines, maybe removing authority to do business. Those are you know, levers the government could presumably pull, but they're not going to send uh, uh, the Department of Justice down your back saying, hey, you didn't give that motor carrier those records from that load from Aldi. You're in trouble.
0: Yeah, like I mean, when you look at it, I mean the idea of them sending in like a hit squad to arrest a TQL executive over not sending a piece of paper.
2: I and mean, I would, would say that's a really good point. It just sounds
0: wild. The,
2: the initial story was there was a raid, and that that kind of story, when you when you sensationalize this, it makes both sides look far less credible. You have to be very specific. That's why I've been kind of cagey on 371.3 as like what exactly happened with the FMCSA and that particular case, because it looks like FMCSA got involved. Maybe it was simply just a letter that they did. They absolutely, as far as I can tell, never went to the building and said, give us these records. I just, I I don't think that it did not happen. I don't believe. And it just, would need a lot more validation for that to be considered accurate.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's
0: like a scene from a movie, man. That's like Wolf of Wall Street, and they come in to get there. Like, I mean, it's just not really how the world works these days. Um, I mean, like you said, if if you were there, if it happened, it might have happened. But, I mean, I don't see a law going into place where it becomes a criminal matter. Um, no. To, to no, paperwork. not at all. I would see this as, as a business matter, you know. This is not going to turn into criminal law um, when we're talking about, you know, paperwork records, transparency records. Yeah. Um, I, I don't see a going to criminal law that's very, very, you know, that's very high, high of a punishment for, for what we're kind of dealing with um, on the matter. Yeah,
2: I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, I think ultimately th- we want to have people follow duly enacted laws whether they're regulations or their statutes and I mean, ultimately
0: bring michael boston on if you're okay with it if he wants to call in, if he wants to come on i mean he seems to, I, to be very I, invested in this like-
1: yeah i think we'll do we'll do a separate show with uh what's we want to we want to stick for the for the legal standpoint but mike we can get you on to talk uh mike mike thinks differently i guess of, of that they actually went to the tql office but we can yeah, it's
2: certainly possible i it, it would be very interesting to see the FMCSA knocking on the door for records of a, of a single transaction but it who who knows maybe
1: I think the FTC does get more involved if it's and you can correct me if I'm wrong for a legal standpoint if it's you know deceptive fraud you know if they like build a case over a couple of years of a company doing bad bad business then the FTC can come raid offices. And you see that with, you know, boiler rooms type of sales. Yeah, and things and, and, and FMCSA that. does audits.
2: Like they'll come into yeah. a company that's, it's, it's on probation probation for what, or intervention status. And they'll look at all your maintenance records and your, and your vehicle records like that is that kind of stuff absolutely happens. But we have to remember the FMCSA is designed as a safety regulatory agency. They're not really focused on broker transparency. It's just not something that they're, um, really in the weeds on day to day
1: 100 well we've kind of talked a lot about about this i know there's a topic you know i don't want to miss out on this because it's a topic that you and i both care a lot about but where are we kind of at with you know non-competes and i kind of wanted to because i see non-competes brought up on linkedin and twitter sometimes i think there's a lot of you know misconceptions a lot of people are like well this part of it makes it inaccurate or this not enforceable. But I think kind of what we were just talking about, about that TQL case for you know 13 years, even if there's, it's not enforceable or this, this, and this, it doesn't mean much if you still have to spend money to defend yourself on these. Yeah. Uh, these, so you
2: know? uh, the, the, this is a really important topic that I'm incredibly passionate about. There are these things we call post-employment restrictive covenants. Um, they're after you've left the job and their obligations that you have with your former company and these things come in all sorts of flavors, non-competes, one of them, non-solicits, non-disparagements, non-disclosures, training repayment plans Like all of these things are things you have to do after you leave the job with a non-competition agreement, one in five working Americans, about 30 million people have signed a non-competition agreement, are under an existing non-competition agreement. These documents are designed to prevent somebody from starting their own business or working for a competitor. They have to be reasonable as it relates to how long they go for. Is it a year? Is it two years? Is it five years? They have to be geographically reasonable. Is it your city? Is it your state? Is it the whole nation? And you have to be very specific on the business that you're not allowed to do, Um, whether it's like brokering or or selling some sort of SaaS product or whatever. Um, We see them everywhere. They're everywhere in the medical field with doctors, with anesthesiologists, with nurses. In our supply chain, we see it with salespeople. We see it with brokers. We see it everywhere. These things are generally enforceable. They are generally um, not out of the ordinary. And the thing that people kind of mistake is that when a company decides not to enforce it, people think, oh, that's because they're not enforceable. No, it's the discretion of the company, what they want to do to the person who might be violating the non-competition agreement. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has put out a proposed rule earlier this year that would ban non-competes for – just about every single application. That being said, um, over 20,000 people commented, which is an incredibly high number, ultimately, and the FTC will likely put out a final rule sometime in March or April of 2024. That being said, the Chamber of Commerce of the United States, the American Trucking Associations, A lot of big businesses have said, if this thing gets finalized, we will challenge it. We will sue and we will we will likely prevail because it's a very real question of does the FTC have the authority to ban non-competition agreements? Can the FTC enter into the private contract between an employee and a hiring entity and make it illegal? Some states ban them outright. California is one of them. Some states regulate them pretty significantly. Illinois is one of those. But these things are, per- they are pervasive, they are pernicious, and they're awful. They're terrible for workers, they're terrible for customers, and they're terrible for shareholders. And ultimately, they will <laughs> go away. It just depends on a question of see, when. See, this
0: is the days. thing. I mean, I'm not, obviously, don't get me wrong, I'm not on the side of non-compete non-solicit um, I personally think, obviously, they don't need to be there. But if they do go away are we gonna see you know issues when it comes down to people going and stealing customers like there's an argument to be made that if they're gone forever you know there's good and bad that's gonna come out of all that. How do you, as a company, then hire people and enforce them not stealing your whole book of business from you? You know, yeah, so into like, your just to steal. From you.
2: Yeah. So, so the non-solicit protects a company from a, a top from a person leaving and calling on the old customers and saying, "Come work with me now." Um, they also prevent you from hiring your former coworkers. What you can't do is when it comes to non-solicit is you can still do your job. Imagine you're a broker and you're saying, OK, I'll start from scratch. i will be a new broker. I can still do that. The idea of a non-competition agreement is we are going to ban you for a period of time to do the thing you're trained to do. And if you do violate it, we just extend it further. The FTC has estimated that it's going to be between $300 billion a year in lost wages for American workers. Because if you could actually transition to a different job, you could make more money. So, this is a way to control workers and ultimately keep compensation low. People have also said the argument that uh, the non competition agreements help protect intellectual property. Um, I'll happily debate anybody on that. That's absolute. M- baloney uh it doesn't protect intellectual property a non-disclosure protects intellectual property a non-compete just stops you from doing your job i'll give you an example one of the most famous non-competes i've ever dealt with or learned about was the company called jimmy john's freaky fast uh, sandwiches freaky Ridiculous non competition agreements. <laughs> they had every single worker sign a two-year-long non-competition agreement that would prohibit that worker from an area of three miles around any Jimmy Johns store from working at a competing sandwich shop, like a subway. And they would sue people who you who tried to go work for another another place. The state of New York, the state of Illinois, they sued Jimmy Johns, they stopped it, they went away. But this is what happens. When businesses are allowed to use legal techniques to restrict free competition, uh, you get really bad outcomes. It's like 30 or 40% of all non-competes are on people that are making under $15 an hour. It's absurd. It's baloney. But that is the world that we live in right now.
1: What about two non... I've seen some comments recently that some companies are writing non-solicits like non compete So they're putting in like the non-solicit that you can't, if like say it's a billion dollar broker and they have, I don't know how many carriers in their network that you can't work with any one of these carriers they're, they're writing things that they're more well written, like a non-compete, but it's non-solicit in, in nature. Are you seeing more of that out there? Yeah. As well?
2: So I have seen, it's a very strange, um, new uh, innovation on non-solicits, which is to say if I go work in another company And I say, here I am. And that former company, my former customer, my former carrier partner calls me and says, hey, I would like to work with you. That is not me soliciting them. That is them soliciting me. You cannot stop another company from coming after you to work with you. But what some people have inserted into non-solicitation agreements is if someone comes after you, someone decides to try to work with you again, you have to refuse working with them that is a non compete that that becomes a non compete when someone who comes to you and says i want to work with you and you say well, i'm sorry i signed a non solicit i can't work with you because the whole idea of the non solicit is it prevents me from reaching out to you it doesn't mean that you can't reach out to me if you reach out to me it's okay so i've been in cases where like the other side will subpoena their your cell phone records. They'll subpoena your direct messages on your social media accounts, and they'll find out, did you solicit or did you not solicit? If it comes out that the other side came to you, you win. It's over. So these non-solicits aren't as dangerous, in my opinion, as a non-compete, but they do have similar challenges of restricting you for a period of time from a certain activity. I wish more companies paid you For those things, like, hey, here's $10,000, sign a non-solicit. Like, that makes more sense to me. But most of the time, it's, hey, sign this document or we're going to fire you. And you're Mm -hmm. like, well, I don't want to sign it. Well, that's okay because you're fired. It's just the nature of how these things function.
1: I think you brought up a good point because a lot of people think, well, if I just get some document that shows that my customers emailed me after I, I left, that it'll be okay But if you went and subpoenaed phone records or whatever and showed that you called, had a bunch of phone calls between that customer before and a bunch of other things, it doesn't really matter that you have, you know, some email showing them reaching out to you if that wasn't the first, first contact.
2: If it's something that can be found out, it will be found out. Like the reality is like you can delete things off your phone. I subpoena the records from the telephone company. I don't need your phone. I can figure it all out. So we have to understand that the way litigation works in this modern day is that anything that is discoverable will be discovered. And if they're litigious enough and they really want to know that answer, they're going to find out. Now, the other thing you've uh, kind of alluded to as well is. Um, you're paying these defense costs out of pocket. Like if you get sued, you are going to hire a lawyer. You're going to deal with that. So you don't want to be in that position. So it's always better. If you have a non-solicitation agreement, don't violate it. Like that's the, you get a lawyer, talk to a lawyer. Every state's different, but you want to really carefully navigate those things because you don't want to be in the crosshairs of a litigation. You're paying out of pocket to
1: defend. Yeah. And I think that's something, you know, you can touch on this a little bit too, but some people on LinkedIn they'll you know, even with these states where non-competes aren't very, they don't have good ground or, you know, they might've retroactively been banned or they don't hold much weight in court that's kind of irrelevant to the fact if you're getting sued, right, they still have a right to sue you and you still have to go through the injunction relief, go through all that's these okay. different court dates. It does not matter if it's, it's not like the judge is going to throw it out on day one, even though it might not have. Even
0: though it should it. be. Yeah. I think yeah, we I get mean, back to that same thing where it's whoever has the most money wins and you're not going to defend yourself. You know,
2: This is that you're absolutely right. I mean, you are, Anyone can be sued for anything. If it's frivolous, you can go back at them and say, hey, this is frivolous. You can get sanctions potentially. But the reality is every side pays their own cost. And in most contexts of these non-competes or non-solicits, there is a fee-shifting provision, which says, if I win, you pay my fees. Uh, Some companies – some companies – Only allow fee shifting if they win. So if they lose, they don't have to pay your fees. Some companies do that. Um, But ones that don't do that, uh, it's usually good to have reciprocity. The reality is like it's hard in this industry. And we make it way harder than it needs to be because we put these things in place thinking that they're going to protect us and our shareholders. But the reality is we just hurt American workers and we don't need to do that. There's there's other ways you can protect your business. If you want to keep your customers, give them great service. If you can't give them great service, assume they're going to go elsewhere. The non-compete, the non-solicit isn't going to prevent a customer from taking their spend elsewhere. And I wish that we had a world where if you see a job application or a job posting, you had to legally disclaim, hey, we have non-competes, we have non-solicits, we have to do all these different you know, disclosure things. That would be awesome. That's not a law now. It's not not required, but it is something that would be, I think, helpful for a lot of uh, workers to see what it is they're actually getting into.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting, interesting world for sure. Um, well, Alex, do you have anything anything else, or Matt, you have anything else? Um, it was a really interesting discussion on both non-compete I mean, and 371.
0: <laughs> as far as it goes for me, since I saw your video today and we touched on it, um, you doing trailer leasing? Like, can I lease some trailers? How does that work? <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Absolutely, so look, I love. We trailers. were actually
0: looking into getting a few drive ins We just couldn't find anyone with prices and you know people we could could do business with.
2: Oh, Alex, we could talk trailers all day. <laughs> there are so my my company. We 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 had, I said, eighteen thousand pieces of equipment. We do new, we do used. Uh, it depends on what kind of your use cases you're looking for. Fifty three foot van with swing doors, that that's a great trailer. Spring ride, air ride. You tell me uh, what's your budget? We'll get it done. So yes, uh, we Whatever. can talk uh, offline. Look, there are 5 million trailers in the United States and everything comes on a trailer. We look at moving freight and reality is freight is just things inside of trailers, whether it's a container on a boat that gets put onto a chassis that brought to a DC and then brought somewhere else. It's all about trailers, man. So I, I nothing makes me happier than thinking about commercial trailers. Yeah, no,
0: we'll definitely talk uh, off the show about uh, us doing some business. But it's funny because when I got into Power Only, um, pretty recently too, actually, we've been hauling a lot of uh, chassis loads yeah and I just never like like I get the pictures because for power only I need a picture of every pickup every delivery and uh I've just been seeing so many you know like a 40 foot chassis you know with a box on top and you never think like it goes from the ship to the chassis and then it goes on a truck you know I always pictured you know the standard case of it goes into a 53 drive and it goes into a reefer but I've uh, seen chassis loads man and like yesterday I picked up like a ga- an empty gas tank I picked up hopper trailers. I moved mobile homes. Yeah. I mean, oh, I they're like-
2: amazing. We have chassis in our fleet that are triaxles that are, that can be either 20 feet long or 40 feet long. Like the, the idea of like how things go from being built to putting on a boat to then getting into your store or your doorstep. It is all about these trailers. I was the, for a while as the largest maintenance vendor for, um, for Amazon, their, their middle mile division. Again, I talked about the FedEx stuff. Like I love those boxes. And I also say a 28 foot pup with a roll up door and a dolly. That's a beautiful combo. That's a beautiful combo. So (laughs) yes i love those boxes and temperature yeah. control my goodness uh there's a thousand pounds of foam inside a reefer trailer this is amazing
0: a thousand pounds of just foam yeah dude, <laughs> They just fixed my uh my balcony just got brand new windows and they put in the foam to seal it all so oh, now yeah. i've got a picture i'm like, a thousand pounds of that it's pretty ridiculous
2: oh yeah. this the, the, when you think about temperature control I, I don't know if you guys have to get going i'll just talk for this for another second but like in the old days, everything you ate had to be grown within 50 miles of you, otherwise it's spoiled, and that's why Chicago is so famous because we had all the meat packing and meat processing. Because we had the rails, we could get people going, fill up containers with ice. But the the revolution of temperature control trailers. There's like I think maybe 700,000, maybe somewhere in that range of how many reefers are in the U.S. But it is crazy what you can move, and it's not just. Uh, food it's things like medical supplies it's um carbon fiber for airplanes like these things have to maintain a temperature so paint i mean all of these things we don't think about necessarily needing temperature control oh they need it and it's so good for backhauls hauls
0: yeah be- paint man that was when i was running reefers this guy tells me oh it's like i can't remember 30 40 degrees 20 degrees for paint yeah. so like it's benjamin moore like it's paint for your house walls i like, go why does this need temperature like that doesn't need temperature control. He told me, no, it's actually for Benjamin Moore manufacturing. It's this X amount of product. Yes. Without the temperature control, the paint will go on your wall and be in a clump. I, thought, yeah, I,
2: I had a customer who, I, this was when I was a maintenance guy, but like they had um, a reefer that, that lost power and there's a load of shrimp. How much do you think a load of shrimp costs? Half a million dollars. Half a million. It's like, oh yeah. I love trailers. <laughs> so much fun. like a loss colossal well, I mean, the we'll trailers are what's all about
0: we'll definitely have a conversation since like I said we are in the market to find a couple drive-ins based yeah. out of Chicago so i'm we'll in st
2: charles buddy where we can we can meet up and talk trailers all day long yeah
0: man. But uh thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for you know giving us some legal aspects um about this. I learned some stuff today, that's for sure as a carrier. Well,
2: I appreciate it, guys. Thank you for having me. And again, if there's ever a time we can talk about law, supply chain or trailers, let me know. <laughs> All
1: right, sounds yeah, good. Thanks again, Matt. Doing, man. My pleasure. All right. Well, that was uh that was good. I, I enjoyed uh Matt's a really entertaining, smart guy, and you know, it was uh it was great yeah, having him on. Great
0: vibes, man. Just such a chill, dude. Uh, that's my first time actually having a conversation with them after seeing them, obviously see them around on LinkedIn every day. Hey, we, we
1: totally forgot to do our sponsor too. Um, you guys see the, uh, before our show, uh, the label HD ships, they do sponsor our show. They are a premier agent program, um, with a lot of different benefits. Um, and we're proud to have them as a sponsor of our show. That's why you see their logo in the um, bottom right-hand corner
0: yeah i mean i learned in my uh, i think grade 11 or 12 uh english class or public speaking class that the most important point of the show or speech should be at the end because that's what people remember so I think hey, that's true i we'll and leave everyone with that in their brain as we get out here uh
1: well uh we'll have to talk to mike I, I i know you want i just didn't want to have him come in while we were middle and you know with with Matt but I, I'm yeah, I mean, uh, we
0: have respect Matt uh, obviously as a guest uh, Michael Boston has been asked to come on the show I'm not sure what his answer has been as I'm not the one dealing with it but as he's very active in the comments we'd love to do a show with him and uh you know let's let's keep this topic going maybe into a Friday show or something like that
1: yeah no yeah Mike like I said I saw your comment and calling and if you want to come on and you know guys share your perspective on this you know from the NOA OA um we're happy to have you on to have your uh your perspective on it. it was it was cool to see the legal the legal aspect i had no idea this has been a regulation since Yeah, you know, that's
0: the thing i thought this whole debate was like we're waiting for this bill to pass and now that we've spoken to him he's like buddy like you can ask any broker at any time for this record now it's up to them if they're gonna give it to you or not and nobody's really putting a gun to their head to make them give it to you but uh it's definitely you know the legal aspect that's um Something that's overlooked and not spoken about, and I think people are just getting, you know, kind of. It's just a lot of speculation, but now we've kind of have some legal background, and you know, that turns it from a gray area into something a little more black and white um, as to what the law actually is. And you um, know, it was it was a good episode. It was cool, cool to learn it, about that.
1: It was interesting too that other group he mentioned, Matt mentioned, that was trying to make it more uh, strict you know, that said, what what was the name of the group he mentioned? I forget, but he, that we're trying to make it so right after a load, a broker would have to submit all the data over immediately. They're lobbying for that. That would be...
0: I mean, I think like from what, you know, my idea would be is like, hey, you know, just when you're booking a load, the rate con should just say like the broker's price and then the carrier's price. I mean, I feel like that's just so much simpler and people are fighting for the transparency of the rates. So I don't see why there has to be all of this information baked into something where it could just be you're really really what carriers and people are asking for is to see the broker's dollar amount paid from the shipper so i think the simplest solution is hey you get a rate con or they tell you on the phone i have five grand i'll give you two thousand do you want it or no you get a rate con that says broker got five grand you got two grand i mean that just seems like the simplest solution to this transparency thing
1: in my opinion uh, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting. I was also, I thought it was interesting too that basically, if a shipper has in their contract, and you can't give out the rate to the carrier, that the law overrules whatever contract that is.
0: Yeah, I mean, like Matthew said, hey, it's the law, buddy. Like you can sign any paper you want, but uh, the law, this is the law, and you gotta respect it. And uh, let's call it end for episode twelve, man. I got a couple
1: trucks I got to deal with, and uh,
0: we'll, we'll be back here when we're back here.
1: Sounds uh sounds good we'll, we'll probably do a Friday show I don't know if it's either with Mike or just a casual Friday talk with you know yeah, we'll do some of us we'll, we'll do something on Friday we just don't know what it will be so
0: huge thanks to Matthew and HD ships and you Matt and uh, we'll be back
1: that yeah, sounds good get those trucks uh get those trucks booked
0: Oh I hope so man. I got about an hour or two left of the day so all
1: right all right see ya
0: peace